Welcome to the Truth to Power Show in Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is Joseph Grasso. He is a writer and public librarian in New York City. His writings have appeared in various publications, including The Humanist, Library Journal, Free Inquiry, Z Magazine, and several websites, including Counterpunch, Dissident Voice, Jacobian, and Countercurrents. Joseph has a BA from Fordham University in Media Studies Journalism and an MA from Pratt Institute in Information Science. He lives in New York City with his wife and two, their two children. This is his first book. His first book is Emerald City, How Capital Transformed New York. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so my first question is about your process and uh, the writing of the book. Uh, when did you start it and uh, how long did it take? And tell us a bit about the research process. Sure. Uh, I started it actually a couple of years ago. Uh, publishing is actually a long game. So I submitted it to publishers last in the, uh, say like the summer of 2019. And it was accepted and it wasn't published until 2020. It takes a year to just, you know, edit it and distribute it and the whole, the whole bit. So I started writing it probably in 2017, 2016. And it took me a few years to research it. I had to read about 50 other books just to write that one. Uh, and I, the reason I wrote the book is I'm, I am a lifetime New Yorker. And uh, since we're on Brooklyn Free Radio, my first 30 years were spent in Brooklyn. And I grew up in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which you know probably uh, listeners will know Williamsburg is like the uh, you know, hipster capital of New York and really a symbol of the new New York. And I, when I grew up there back in the uh, 80s and 90s, you know, it wasn't the place people wanted to visit. It was uh, just a working class neighborhood, immigrants, Italian population, Hispanic population, uh, a lot of public housing. So, and I, I was there, I watched the change unfold. I watched the gentrification of Williamsburg and Bushwick and Greenpoint happen in real time. And I became uh, very interested and even kind of obsessed with the idea. I wanted to understand what was happening. And that's why it led me to uh, do a lot of research. And it led me to write this book. That's, that, that's that was my personal motivation for it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what are the years that are covered in the book? What are the time frame? Uh, well, I'd say probably my lifetime. I was born in, in the late seventies. Age myself, yeah. a little. <laughs> and uh, I'd say, generally speaking, the book covers that period. Uh, particularly, maybe in the nineties, in the nineties until the present day. But it goes back to the seventies and even a little before that. Touches on uh, earlier periods. Yeah, so basically us, my lifetime. Oh, good, good. And tell us, what's the thesis of the book? Uh, how do you approach gentrification and the changing in New York City? Uh, right. What are kind of your, what are some of the myths you dispel, or some of the misconceptions you dispel? Well, that was that was my that was the idea. The last thing you said, uh, posing, growing up, and I guess our viewers, if our listeners have been here a while, they'll know that uh, the story of New York for the last. I want to say 30 years at least, it was, was the uh, saving of the city by conservative, like conservative politics, conservative politicians, from, you know, Marco Bloomberg, uh, Rudy Giuliani, you know, tough on crime policies, uh, cutting welfare reform, and like how the, the mythology is that New York from in the 60s, 70s, 80s was a, you know, a hellhole, bleeding uh, population, bleeding money, and it, it took you know, conservatism, it took uh, Rudy Giuliani with his, and William Bratton with their tough on crime policies, it took welfare reform, and that 
quote unquote save the city. And that, that's been the, that's been the mythology of New York City for the past thirty years, uh, certainly before the pandemic. And what I hope to show in the book is that you know it's much more complicated than that, to say the least. If you look at uh, I think take one one telling metric. If you look at uh, poverty, you know the city back in the '60s when the uh, urban crisis began uh, throughout the country. The poverty rate in New York was actually less than the national average. It was two-thirds of the national average. It was less. And even in the dark days of the 70s, which is considered the, really the bottom of New York, uh, New York's history, at least modern history, the poverty rate was equal. It was, it was the same. Now, you know, in the so-called golden age, it's actually 40% higher. More, New York is a poorer city now than it was then. And that kind of, and that you don't hear that about that in this mythology of... Uh, you know, the saved uh, city. Mm. So tell us a little bit more about the dark days of the 70s. We always hear okay. about that, especially like movies like Taxi Driver or uh, and similar movies kind of oh, depicting totally. the, the uh, gritty urbanness of the city in the 70s and uh, how, how dark it was. Yeah, tell us a little bit. Yes. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Oh, certainly. Uh, well, it's interesting point you bring up, uh, you know, the, uh, the movies back then is that... Uh, yeah, one, of the, one thing I'll just mention quickly as an ironic fact is that in the late 60s, it was Mayor John Lindsay. City, uh, movies were not made in New York that much in that, in that period, in the 60s, even though it was the biggest city in the country. Uh, they, they, were, they made reforms to process about how to film movies in New York, and the, movies, uh, the number of movies actually increased in the late 60s. And the funny thing is, is that it in a way it increased, but at New York's expense because most of the movies were made were all like you mentioned, Taxi Driver, yeah. you know, uh, what was the other one with Charles Bronson? Uh, anyway, uh, Needle Park, Touch Connection, all these kind of gritty movies. On one hand, I will say, I mean, just before I get into the dark stuff, is that this period of the seventies, there was a lot of good things about it. I mean, uh, as you say, it was really the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, producing movies in New York City with uh, young Scorsese and Woody Allen and a lot of great films were made. And also it was the uh, punk rock was uh, came around then, disco came around then, pop art was around then. So there, there was a lot of good things about it too. I mean, it wasn't all dark. They, they did produce a lot of great uh, great art movements. But as far as it, the uh, what, what's meant by the dark days is that the city was facing bankruptcy in the 70s. And uh, <coughs> Excuse me, and it certainly was true. The city, uh, the city was was uh, in debt. In fact, to this day, it's still paying off that debt, <laughs> right to this as we speak. But uh, the story of it is really is the transformation of the economy, and the industrialization that took place prior to that. And let me I'll elaborate a little bit here. So bear with me. Uh, in the sixth, New York was an industrial city. It's a working class industrial city, a, a great big union town all through like the post-war period. And then, because of some urban planning and, and, and the advisory suburbs in the post-war period that were subsidized by the government, New York deindustrialized and it lost its industrial base, a lot of it. And that obviously increased, that lowered the tax revenues of, uh, that were collected, you know, the working class becoming a poor city, as I mentioned just a second ago. Mm -hmm. At the same time, as that was going on, the city, uh, again, through urban planning, that was bad. That was that was uh, not bad. It was uh, geared towards elites and everything else. Uh, 
it was it was heavily subsidizing the construction of office buildings in the Manhattan. So we're spending a lot of money on and also spending money on middle class housing and the rich allowance program. And so while on one hand it was deindustrializing, on the other hand it was spending a, subsidizing a lot of things that probably shouldn't have been subsidizing. And at the time when this happened, in a, as the, uh, the budget crisis was unfolding, the uh, the mythology, the, the conservative media, even the local media, it was blaming the pension. Oh, pensions are too high. Worker pensions are too high. Uh, City College had free tuition at that at this point in time, and that, and that was considered. Oh, they're spending money on this. It shouldn't be. You know, the social the social welfare programs were were, were targeted, even though it was the crisis could have been avoided, or certainly the worst of it was worst of it could have been avoided if New York wasn't subsidizing all this other the office buildings, the corporate economy, etc. So that, mm. that part of it is left off, and it's usually, so you always hear about, well, spending was too high, welfare was too high, and, and it wasn't. Uh, spending of New York, uh, New York's spending on welfare matched basically every other city in the country. It, it wasn't. It, it, was, it was poor urban planning on the part of elites, and that, that's that's really the main story, and it gets left out. And at the, end, the result of it was is that, you know, tuition was charged that these, these programs were cut. Tuition was charged at City College after uh, starting in the late 70s. Uh, Central Park Zoo was free uh, prior to that. Now, you, you can go there now, you got to spend about 40 bucks for your family to get into it. So there, there was uh, changes, and it, but the story was much more complicated than uh, as it's portrayed. Yeah, yeah. So uh, how did things change and transform in New York? Well, as the, as a, the, the industrial economy was... Uh, was uh, actually before I, let me uh, bring up this. Check, yeah, uh, check something. Yeah, let me interject something. Uh, in, in my book, I mentioned that it's a theory by Neil Smith, the geographer, called the rent gap theory, and I'll I'll put it in lay terms, very very broadly, if I could. Uh, the, the reason I, I call the book "How Capital Transformed New York" is that capital always moves, and it, it's always seeking its highest rate of return. So the idea is a seesaw effect where in the post-war period in, in New York, it's, it's Long Island and Westchester, the suburbs. Uh, in the post-war period, the government subsidized highway building and subsidized the auto industry. And the capital went to the suburbs because that was where its greatest return was. It was, it was sort of a new area. So that's, that's where it was. And then... What happens is the city is ghettoized. The capital leaves the cities, and not just New York, Detroit, St. Louis, all cities. There was an urban crisis, L.A., everywhere. And then, after a generation or so, the cities are, you know, ghettoized, and, and suddenly the land is this is kind of the land is cheaper because you know it's it's a ghetto, and so capital goes back to there because it, it's the, the return, the the gap, the spread, take the stock market, right? I mean, you could buy you could buy Apple stock, you could buy Amazon stock, and it, it's they're good investments, but they're already they're already very expensive. They're already up there. The idea is to get to buy stock that is cheap and hope that it becomes the next, you know, Apple, Amazon, etc. So in a way, it's the same thing with with, with capital with cities and, and places. It goes to one place, it builds it up, and then when the, the potential the potential in the other place that it left before is there because it's so cheap, it's a good investment again, it comes back. So that's that's sort of what that's what happened in that's what happened in New York City. So 
the transformation, as you say, in the uh, was industrialization, the loss of New York's port, the, uh, you know, increased poverty. But at the same time, you have a lot of wealth coming in, a great inequality. The uh, the um, coast of New York, uh, the dock areas in New York, the along the river, it used to be all factories. Now they're all you know high class, high end condos. Uh, and you know tech companies, and so you have what you have is greater, uh, greater wealth and greater poverty. Yeah, and popcorning around uh, on the different topics, but um, kind of going into a little bit of housing in New York uh, and how that's always been problematic. We had the housing crises, and oh, yeah. uh, you know, and kind of tell us a little bit of overview of how like housing, and also kind of thinking about how affordable housing versus like you know. Um, uh, about affordable housing, yeah. We can talk more broadly, and then we can get more specific, yeah. Oh, well, well, certainly. Well, obviously, we have a housing crisis. I mean, homelessness again. Uh, which the narrative on this is changing now because the crisis has, got, has gotten so bad. But again, homelessness is something that you don't hear about that often either in this that conservative mythology of New York City. And to the extent that you hear about it, when it does come up, it usually comes up with, "Oh, you know, people are homeless day there." It's a social problem, you know, that they're mentally ill, they're drug addicts, they're, they're ruining the street and everything. It doesn't come up, off of, it doesn't uh, get tied to the housing crisis. And there is a housing crisis, as you know, I'm sure our listeners uh, know in Brooklyn, they're tremendously expensive to live. And what, what you had, one of, the, one of the offshoots of this uh, process I mentioned before, the, the, you know, the rent gap process, is that we have vast parts of, of Manhattan, uh, well, the city, I guess, in general, but, but certainly in Manhattan, where people... The houses, you know, they're, they're used by foreign investors, international investors, I should say, just to park money in New York's housing. I mean, there's sections of the city where the housing's all sold, it's owned by people, but they're not there 10 months of the year, it's empty, because people are just using it for, you know, vacation houses to show up for a couple of weeks to do shopping. It's owned by international, you know, business people uh, and investors. So that, that's one part of the housing crisis. If you, if you go, uh, I tell our listeners, if, if you're in Manhattan one night, you know, uptown, maybe around Lincoln Center and the Upper East Side and over there. If you walk down the street and see how many lights are on in the buildings, you, you, you walk the street and you, you look at all these buildings, the lights are off. The lights are all off because there's no one, there's no one in there. They're all, they're all owned by uh, speculators and investors and people don't live in there. It's just, it's just pure investments uh, for the people that own them. So there is a tremendous housing crisis. And uh, what, what you hear... As far as solutions to the crisis goes, is there's only there's they, they broadly uh, just say, okay, listen, there's a housing crisis. We have to build more housing. You know, we have to keep building, building, building until uh, until um, you know the, the supply equals the demand uh, per se. I, I argue in the book that we need more social housing. We need we need more housing that's not a commodity. We need to get housing out of the real estate industry and, and use it as a use value for housing. So that that's uh, a solution again that you don't hear that much. You're starting, to, you're starting to hear a little more about it now, but for a long time we didn't. But hopefully we'll uh, we'll get back. To, we'll get. We have a public housing in New York City. New York City actually has the largest public housing system in the country. We have about four hundred thousand uh, apartments, but we need uh, we need more. Yeah, and it also seems like uh, there's a connection between like the city. Uh, what well, how does it compare as far as like homelessness goes to other cities in the in the in the country or around the oh, there's a homeless crisis really. In the, uh, everything I, everything I just said about New York can apply also to probably San Francisco and LA as well. Yeah, 
and they have they have the biggest they actually have the, the biggest ho- uh, homeless crisis. Uh, DC has a homeless has a homeless crisis. It's gotten maybe a little bit better in, in the last couple of years, but they have a crisis there. And DC is another area that kind of again the same kind of transformation took place. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's nothing unique. It's more like a pattern in cities, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's the process I described before. Again, that you see saw a pattern of people moving capital moving back to cities from the suburbs. You know from where. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, the poor and working class get priced out of it, and that, that's really the root of it. I mean, the solution, the solution to homelessness is easy. We, we need homes, but I think the homes should have to be social housing. You have to get it away from the real estate industry. Yeah, and also just to also get a fun point in the book about the Big Apple, things like the Big Apple. How did that come about? I think you discussed for a little bit. So if you talk a little bit about that and kind of the yeah. mythologies around New York and the, the different tags we, we associate with New York. Uh, maybe that oh, yeah. might be a fun thing to talk well, about. Well, the Big Apple, uh, uh, it's unclear about where that exactly that came from. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, might have, it might have came from out of the jazz culture, uh, just as, as like a nickname. But as far as, again, how the city promoted itself in the, in the 70s, in this, this period of uh, crisis, the city wanted to become, uh, they wanted to attract tourists and they wanted to attract you know, capital and business. So they came up with these sort of uh, Big Apple and uh, I Love New York and or, you know that kind of stuff. And again, again, in the long term, I guess unfortunately it did work. We have so many tourists in New York, and that's another maybe a factor that helped us to help with the uh, housing crisis as far as Airbnbs and, and that that sort of thing. But it, it was uh, it was part of this mythology of, of creating a business friendly, a business tourist friendly New York, and, and they, they they put a lot of effort into it. Uh, the Big Apple was one. I love New York. Uh, I think there was a Sesame Street theme. Yeah, there was all kinds of stuff that they were trying yeah. to do just to make the city look friendly. Yeah, and also we can talk a little bit about how in the past year the pandemic has affected New York. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, and how how what are the what is the um, prognosis? Sure. Uh, well. Again, I wish I had written the book a little later. I could have actually concluded a chapter on this. Uh, the pandemic, uh, as far as just purely economics goes, I mean, there's, the, the big question is what's going to happen to the city's office space uh, where office workers, the city, as I mentioned, as I alluded to before, the city bases a, a lot of its economy on, on finance and uh, office space. Expanding office space has always been a priority for urban planners uh, in the city. Is the office space going to be there? I mean, uh, that's no one. No, no one knows for sure. The city does face, I think, an eight billion dollar debt. Eight or nine million, eight or nine billion, I think, last I checked. But uh, Joe Biden's stimulus plan does seem like it's going to help in that regard. But in the long term, I'm not sure. We have to see how how it goes. Uh, so far, there's been no layoffs for public sector workers. Uh, there's been some furloughs here and there, but no, no, no layoffs. Uh, now. As far as what we're hearing now, again, the conservative mythology of New York City is what, what I mentioned before, how it saved New York. But now, since the pandemic started in the last year, we're starting to hear those, those that same chorus, of that same conservative chorus say, oh, the city has to be, the city has to be saved again. The de Blasio and the Democrats, they're, they're messing it up. So uh, we'll see how, if they're going to target the... Uh, the city's work of payroll has expanded in recent years under the under de Blasio, but mainly that was because of the universal pre-K program. 
So I'm not sure are they going to try to cut that. We're going to see, but we will fate will be hearing uh, calls to, you know, just like in, just like in the, in the 70s, we will be hearing calls to cut services, and hopefully it will, the city will be able to uh, fend them off this time. Yeah, and you were talking a little bit about the office spaces and how during the pandemic and how I guess many people were working from home. But tell us a little bit more about how um, you know what you think is the future. What what, what would be your hot take on where we should what we should do moving forward or you know kind of what would you encourage what kind of policy would you encourage or what kind of things seem sensible well yeah it's, it's uh, under the current model uh i guess i i, I can backtrack a little bit uh to uh going all the way back to and i mentioned this in the book going all the way back even to like the late 20s uh urban planners in new york have always envisioned the city of uh you know corporate professionals, you know, corporation dominating, you know, uh, service economy, service economy, they, and uh, they, it actually happened, you know, the, New York did lose its industrial base, and, and urban planners have, have long targeted this, going all the way back to 1920. And as far as the, I mean, I'm not, New York right now has, the economy is built on the central business district of the, the office buildings in, in Midtown, and the, the question is, uh, and, it's built, and as far as the working class goes, it's the service economy. It's the working class services, the corporate professionals, you know, restaurants, uh, yeah. bars, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, if there's no corporate professionals there, and it's going to be difficult to keep that model up. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to see foresee the future as far as... Uh, well, if you were to replicate something that worked in the past... How would you replicate? Like, is there any particular strategy that worked in the past that uh, you'd like to see replicated? Well, again, it's going to be very difficult to bring back all the uh, factory jobs that we had. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, in that in that sense, if you're going to think about it in the grand scope, it is it does seem bleak if if the office workers don't come back and, and if the economy has to transform. It's not easy to see what transformations it could it could happen. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, let's, York, well, let's. Yeah, well, I, I said New York, New York does have a still have a union presence, so that there are union jobs and you know doorman buildings and and that kind of thing, and you know it's still we still produce movies and everything. The, 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 the film the film industry in New York is still pretty good, but yeah, it's going to be uh, hard to foresee what would happen if the if it has, has it has to be a major, a major transformation in the economy. It's hard to see where it goes. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the leadership and. In de Blasio, and also we can talk a little bit about Cuomo's scandals and Cuomo's allegations. Uh, but first, we'll start with de Blasio. How has he been doing, or what is your report card, and how he compares to previous uh, previous models or previous uh, mayors in yeah, the city? Yeah, I'd say uh, again, it, it goes back to uh, it really. It goes back to uh, really the seventies again. If you look at there was Koch, there was uh, Dinkins, Giuliani, Bloomberg, and de Blasio. And again, again, just uh, looking at the city as a whole, they're very similar in the sense that, given that New York lost its industrial base, there's, there's limited policy in the grand scheme of things. It all amounts to trying to attract through subsidies and outright, you know, tax cuts and outright subsidies, just trying to attract businesses to the city, to make to fill in to fill in those, uh, you know, the the, uh, the industrialized hole that was filled that was left. So in, in that sense, there's, there's as far as 
the grand scheme of things and the model of the economic model, you know, they all they all have they all have to operate within it. You know, you have you have to fill the cities that filled their old factories with lofts and artists and uh, artists and and condos and tech companies. They're the ones that quote unquote succeeded. And, and cities that didn't do that, like St. Louis and Detroit, they're the ones that struggle. You know, so and and really in the grand scheme of things, a lot of you know, the older mayors are kind of the same. They all have to work within that same model. Yeah. As far as de Blasio goes, I mean, he had some successes early on. He uh, did establish with Cuomo, you needed Cuomo for it, uh, the universal pre-K program, which is popular. And he did end stop and frisk, which was part of that tough on crime uh, policies of, uh, of the Bloomberg years. So as far as that goes, he, he did do that. But other than that, he's been pretty inconsequential, I'd say. Yeah. The pandemic was more. You know, he's only a mayor, so the, the pandemic, the pandemic policy was more formal at the state level. Yeah, and he did a poor job with it. But uh, yeah, we can before we that. get to Cuomo, um, also about uh, Occupy and the effect of Occupy, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, yeah. What What are your thoughts on Occupy and kind of how he handled the Occupy Wall Street movement? But that was Bloomberg. Uh, oh well, right, yeah, right. He, yeah. He did a. Uh, Bloomberg, well, I mean, they were there for a while, and Bloomberg eventually broke it up. Uh, yeah. I, I, as far as the effects of it goes, uh, not too much, I, I'd say. <laughs> as yeah. far as the city goes. Yeah. You know, Wall Street's still, the, the, uh, the financial industry is still the biggest industry in New York, or uh, certainly one of, no, I think it is the biggest. It, it contributes most of it, most of the tax money. And it, again, that's the, that's the model that we're stuck with for the time being. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let me just remind listeners, this is the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're talking to Joseph Grosso uh, about Emerald City, how capital transformed New York. So why don't we talk, I just want to interject about the title, Emerald City. Um, where did that come from or where is that, where's the origins <laughs> of that? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, I had a uh, different title picked out for the book. I, I mean, I, I really didn't give the title much, much thought until the end of until I wrote it. Yeah. I had to submit it. And I picked, I had picked a strange title before that, and the publisher's like, no, 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 we can't. I picked a, I forgot what the title, it was, it was a strange title. It wasn't, the, I think it was based on a Charles Dickens character that no one ever heard of. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, from Tale of Two Cities. Uh, yeah. So the publisher's like, no, no, we can't. You got to pick a more, an easier title. So, and I was, uh, I don't know, I just was thinking, oh, Emerald City, like the Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz is, yeah. you know, the city, the city looks bright. In the city look in the movie, the Wizard of Oz. Obviously, the city looks all green and beautiful and bright. But underneath it all, the wizard's an idiot. <laughs> so I kind of thought it was be the same for New York. You know, all glitzy and rich and bright, but underneath it all, it's you know, uh, doesn't look as good. <laughs> that, yeah. That good, good. So let's talk about Cuomo then. Uh, talking about the allegations and how you uh, digest all that, and whether that he should uh, step down. Uh, I hope so. I hope it does. I hope it gets thrown out if that's if it doesn't yeah. step down. Uh, <laughs> well, Cuomo was. Uh, I mean, it'd be hard to find a, a, politi- a political fall that came this quick. Usually, I mean, in New York City, just again speaking of uh, looking back on it. I mean, if you lived in New York City through nine eleven, you had a, uh, you had to endure Giuliani being called uh, the American Churchill, nor the honor he got. Yeah. So I mean, the one bright spot is that these things don't last. The sentiment eventually they run out. Giuliani is now a disgraced, a disgraced figure. He always should have been. 
uh, as far as Bloomberg, uh, as far as uh, uh, Pomo, I'm sorry, goes, happened a lot faster. I mean, Pomo only got a few months in the sun. But uh, if you look at his handling of the, of the pandemic, it, it was bad from the start. I mean, he was very slow to shut down the city, and the state, I should say. Uh, San Francisco shut down the city, its city, about five days, six days before New York did. And New York got hit uh, much harder. And uh, you wonder how many lives could have been saved if Cuomo could have shut down the state sooner. And then there was that terrible decision he made about letting, uh, requiring nursing homes to take COVID patients. I mean, even in the even in the early chaos of the pandemic, uh, that decision stands out still to this day as pretty callous. That was a very bad decision. But uh, from there, he got so much. His, his press conferences were so not. He got so much praise and, and credit from liberals for his press conferences that. Uh, and then, and then he had the goal to write, actually write, came up with a book, actually, before the pandemic was even over. I mean, the book came out in October, and, and meanwhile, the pandemic was just, was still uh, was getting worse in the state at that point. I mean, the, the goal to write a book at that point. So, I mean, he was just begging to take a fall, and uh, I'm glad it happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, also, um, some of the points he made in the book about, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, tell us a little some more of the... Uh, myths or, or problems or issues that come up that uh, you feel you want to dispel or uh, with regards yeah, uh, to, yeah. Well, one thing I would, I mean, just to get back to the housing question, uh, one thing I would like to dispel is the issue of uh, public housing. Yeah. That's another crisis that we're having here in New York City. Uh, and, you know, it gets a bad name uh, nationally and in New York. And uh, it really shouldn't, in my opinion. Uh, what, like, uh, I mean, let me take a, a step further back. Uh, the crime rate uh, in New York, New York had a you know, very bad reputation for crime going back to uh, the start of the urban crisis in the late 60s. And when you, when you look at, uh, right, right, the late 60s through the early 90s, say, that kind of, that period, that 25-year period where crime was high, but it was, it was high all over the country. And the, the crime rates in New York were really, even though New York maybe had a worse reputation, reputation than other places, the crime rate in New York wasn't, was never the highest in the country. I mean, the murder rate and the violent crime rate was actually, it, it was lower than a lot of places. LA, Chicago, uh, Detroit, many places, Boston even. Um, and now muggings were high in New York. New York had a muggings in New York were, were, were very high. That was that was that was the worst part of New York. But I mean, the crime rate because of New York's prominence in film and the films that we discussed, Taxi Driver and uh, such like, New York had a worse reputation than it, it didn't really deserve it. Though other cities were, were worse, but New York took the brunt of it. And inside of, of that whole that whole dynamic was public housing, and public housing got blamed for crime, even though. There was, there was less crime in public housing than outside of public housing. And public housing really got, um, became synonymous with low class and, and, and bad morals and all the rest of it, and you know, low class people. And it, was, it wasn't a product of the housing itself, it was a product of the whole process I, I described before of capital flight from the city. When, neighborhood, when, the, when the entire, when whole neighborhoods were, were being ghettoized by capital flight, and the public housing was there. Of course, public housing was going to be affected. It wasn't public housing's fault. And I, I 
it is an idea now that I, I think again I'll, I'll go back even further. Right, further. Uh, when public housing began in the in the post war period, post World War Two period in the forties, when it really took off and it was really being built, there was a idea, and it was by uh, the real estate industry and uh, and other industries. They really want. They really did their best to make sure public housing didn't reach a wide, a wide. Uh, yeah, it wasn't built. It was it wasn't built widely to scale, because they, they didn't want a competitor to their, their private real estate industry, and that kind of set public housing up to fail because it kind of ensured that it was always it would always be built on the cheap. It was it was only it was meant, it was meant to be housing for the last resort in the beginning, and I think if we Fast forward to the present day. I think if we can bring, if we can dispel those notions, and, and we can build social housing, not just for the poorest people, but even for middle class people, and set up a serious or uh, competitor to the private real estate industry, that would bring down rents for the rest of the city and, and other other cities in the country. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to think about like um, strategies and figuring out ways we can address the housing crisis and yeah. also ways in which we can, uh, you know, all these things are connected. It's like the homelessness connected to, uh, and also dealing with the uh, way the, the city is perceived even, you know, uh -huh. the way in which we, we experience our quality of life and uh, with crime and all that. And, and, and it's all connected. The economy, yeah, connected, housing, yeah. crime, it's all, you can't, there's a synergy between all these issues that you can't ignore. You can't you can't talk about one without the other. Yeah, and also oh, yeah. I wanted to bring up uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, the movement and uh, New York. You mentioned briefly the ending of stop and frisk and all this kind of thing yes. related issues. So tell us a little bit more about your perception of how the police relations with uh, black communities and uh, and how that's evolved yeah. over the years. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you go back to stop and frisk, just to, so our, our viewers uh, understand uh, the scale of it, uh, it started in the early, well, I mean, it really took off in the early 2000s under, Bloomberg, under Bloomberg's administration. And by, I want to say 2008, 9, 10, I mean, the police were stopping, like, making like 600,000 stops a year, more even of wow. uh, people. Think about that in the city. Uh, That's crazy. And I think about, I want to say at least, at least eighty percent of the time, if not ninety percent of the time, there was no no crime. There, there was nothing. The stop ended. There was no consequence at all. I mean, there was no arrest made. There was no summons. Nothing. I mean, it, it was just randomly stopping people on the street randomly. That's how bad it got by the time by by the end of Bloomberg's administration. So the the Blasio actually, I mean, it is a credit to his administration that they did. I, the last uh, in twenty twelve, a judge, a federal judge, put a pause on a program. So that did happen, and then the Bloomberg administration appealed the uh, that decision. And then when uh, the Blasio was elected, his administration they they pulled back the appeal. So they did effectively officially end the program. So that that is a credit to uh, his administration. But I mean that's how bad it got. So I mean. It, it, you can see where Black Lives Matter came from. I mean, given that, I think, any, but I think an overwhelming number of I, I, the percentage, I can't, uh, maybe almost 100 percent of the people really were stopped were Black and Hispanic, people of color. And again, so again, for, mostly for no reason. So you can see where Black Lives Matter uh, came from. 
and then uh, and then we had the ever gotten the case in New York City in uh, what year was that? Twenty fifteen, maybe. Yeah, anyway, Elgarden, the, the famous I, I Can't Breathe case where the man was selling loose cigarettes and the cops tried to arrest him and he ended up dead, getting choked to death. So, you, uh, yeah, I mean, you can understand uh, where Black Lives Matter came from and it's uh, certainly a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And um, let's see, what other stuff? Uh, what let, me other say, themes? Let, me, let me just say one more thing about that. If I could. Yeah. Uh, my one, My one comment about my one critical critique of maybe some of the black lives matter movement uh i mean i certainly support the movement uh would be that you'd like to, you'd like to see it go into uh much much of it is geared towards i mean the black lives matter movement particularly is, is geared against police brutality which is certainly a good thing but some of them with the movement that surrounds black lives matter sometimes they're, they're a little focused on uh a little too focused on, on, on race and not enough on class. See, if you, if you can bring more class politics into it and get the entire working class united around issues of economic justice and housing, I think it'd be more successful. Yeah, no, definitely. Time. I think that uh, we need to raise an awareness about class and about, uh, you know, and how it fits in together, how yes. all these pieces fit together. Um, in my perception, it's more like, uh, a, you know, another movement that needs to, gain a little bit more momentum, you know, rather than, I mean, like the Occupy movement was trying to do that, you know, it was trying, it was aiming towards doing that, although it wasn't as creating as much momentum and had too many things associated with it. Uh, it wasn't, you know, ultimately I think Occupy was about economic awareness. Oh, it was. Yeah, I thought so too, but although it seemed to get a little dissolute, like um, unfocused, with yes. uh, with just sitting in with this protests of you know occupying and all that, and but that now we have kind of the residual effects and how um, how the the wake in the wake of it how we understand politics and talking about AOC now uh, oh. how she's become a force in New York New York uh, scene as well as in Congress a national and international figure um, yes. kind of she, her politics are very progressive uh wing of the democratic party and it seems like the democratic party now is splitting in half between the more centrist to moderate democrats to the more aoc oriented uh progressive democrats and tell us a little bit of your analysis of that well, uh, AOC, yeah. aoc is green new deal yeah it's a, perfect, it's a perfect place to bring up this class politics that we just discussed yeah it's about creating jobs and uh if you can keep that class, the class, and that job creating and economic and class part of it central, it, again, it, not only would it accomplish a lot as far as actually accomplishing things, it would also politically, it would be a, a uniting force. I'll put it, I mean, I, I think of it this way. I mean, this, this is nationally, not just New York. The poorest part of the country is actually rural Kentucky, eastern Kentucky, which is a rural area. Yeah. And it's overwhelmingly white and an overwhelmingly vote Republican. Yeah. And I think if we can get the uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement united with the people there, then it could be unstoppable. I mean that that would be the key to uh, <laughs> imagine, imagine if that ever happened. That would be that would be great. Yeah, definitely addressing. What are your what are your thoughts on the idea of w the systemic change to the police? Like basically, the, you know, I know the defunding of police is like looked upon strangely, 
But uh, basically what it's saying is reallocating those funds towards social services instead right. of armed military presence of the of the police. We're looking towards, uh, you know, reaching out to people who are like homeless people who are causing disruptions or mentally ill people who are causing a right. scene. You know, instead of always calling 911 and having the police come over, you know, we want to be able to have the city respond with social services you know what are right. your thoughts on well, that yeah. there's two interesting dynamics uh that come out of this one is that th there has been progress one, one positive thing that has happened over the last 30 years is that crime rates have gone down substantially in the, in the country all over the country new york included uh and the funny thing is is well that's happened the police have gotten more militarized yeah it's sort of a strange thing where crime is actually crime is going down but the police SWAT team usage has gone up drastically. <laughs> so, and, and also the police have become more heavily armed uh, through uh, programs that were instituted by the uh, Clinton administration and also uh, the Bush administration, where they've gotten their hands on, on excess military hardware. And yeah. all this has happened at a time when crime has actually declined. <laughs> so when you think about that, it's, it's a strange, uh, it's a strange uh, thing. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, you know, it's, Reactionary, it's backward if you think about it that way. And also, there's uh, when crime was higher in the uh, in the period of the open crisis from the late the late 60s through the early 90s. I mean, it's, crime was definitely a real thing. I mean, and it, that, I mean, as you pointed out, it, it affects minority communities much more than rich communities. Uh, what, what you kind of found is that even though prison is, is expensive. It's cheaper than universal programming, from universal social programs that help everybody. Prison is more expensive per capita, but it's that it's cheaper in the grand scheme of things because less people go to prison than you know than exist in the world. So it kind of goes back into this class analysis of that we need a, a more class-based politics for more social programs that even though they cost, even though they're expensive, that they could, uh, you know, they can avoid people going to jail. Mm. Uh, but instead, states. States and cities opted for jail because it is cheaper, even though it is pricey in its own way. But it's cheaper because less people use it, and not universal. You know, you get it? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it is. It feeds back into this class politics that we need to have to have universal programs and a united, a united working class that could uh, that could uh, just improve society in general, reduce poverty, uh, and and again, reduce crime and uh, have less need for the cops. No, that's, that's, that's the idea. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about the division of the city and uh, the flavor of, you know, each borough has its own uh, flavor. Each borough has its own uh, distinct nature uh, and how that kind of defines the city. Um, tell us a little bit about the history of like, do you know, are you familiar with like the history of how the city was divided and and how uh, are the boroughs and and what do you take on now? You've lived in Brooklyn. Where else uh, have you lived anywhere else in New York City or? Well, no, I spent my first uh, thirty or so years in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Yeah, and I moved here to uh, Queens, Queens yeah. uh, close to Eagle Park, and now out of Forest Hills. Yeah, well, that's one of the one of the downsides of this whole process of the city's transformation was we lost a lot of what you just said. I mean, uh, Times Square used to be, you know, it had, it had certainly had its seedy parts to it, but Times Square used to be a very unique place, uh, as far as in New York goes. Now it's, you know, it's, it's all it's basically a corporate, uh, a corporate, a corporate tour site. 
Yeah. You go from if you get on, if you go to Times Square and then you get on, then get on a bus and go to say Boston or Philly, you get off the bus and it's the same. It's basically the same place. It's the same store. Yeah. You know, it's the same store. It's the same. So I mean, part of um, part of what the we lost, I think, in this whole transformation of New York over the past thirty or forty years is that some of our it's, New York is still very diverse. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's one of the most diverse cities in the world, and you know, parts of you know, large parts of Queens and, and the Bronx. There's a lot of immigrant communities that have you can find a lot of uh, a lot of fun stuff, a lot of fun, interesting culture. But a lot of places, like I would say, like Williamsburg and Greenpoint, where I'm from, you know, we used to, we lost a lot of it. Now it's very, very. I find it to be very plastic. It's very you know, glass buildings. Very, it's we've lost some of that diversity. I, I think that's one of the tragedies of uh, the transformation. I would say. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Also, it seems like with uh, with Staten Island being more like less diverse than uh, other areas. Although the, now, Stephen Staten Island is becoming diversified. You know, yeah, in the sense of like the North Shore yes. and all this kind of thing, and. Uh, and many bars in, in many in Queens and many immigrants are coming to Staten Island. And then uh, uh, we have a bit of pockets. There's a lot of pride in the immigrant communities, the pockets of immigrant communities in each in each borough. And Queens, yeah. it seems like each borough has its own uh, distinct community and how that yeah. kind of informs. That's what I, yeah. That's, 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 what, that's been this, the city's uh, immigrant working class has always been as great as following. Yeah. You know, I just have to hope that we can empower it to uh, become more prosperous. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as uh, diversity goes, I mean, that is. What, well, I, I just. I just let me go back one, se uh, one step. We have lost some of our black populations. It's gone, it seems like it's gone down a bit, given the gentrification of uh, Harlem and uh, Bed Stuy and places like that. So, unfortunately, again, that's one of the byproducts of this, uh, uh, this. The process of New York over the past 40 years. We have lost some diversity. But we also we do have a lot. Of, I mean, we gained a lot of Hispanic and Asian uh, populations too. But uh, yeah, it's always been the city's greatest quality. So we have about ten more minutes left. Uh, talking a little bit about uh, the going a little bit back into the pandemic and uh, and the way in which uh, we can kind of look to the future. And and the main the main thing is the future really repeating patterns of the past and how in the past thirty years. We have pattern building and we have like, uh, you know, um, this kind of thing. And we have like um, uh, and how we can understand some of the lessons uh, from the past 30 years. And yeah. like I, I would uh, yeah. say, yes, I would say what we, what we want to avoid. And I think we could uh, if, if Biden's bill helped us helps me off with this deficit. We want to avoid a repeat of the 70s where we're forced to cut where. You know, elite, uh, politicians and elites—they they forced us to cut social programs, and, uh, and uh, in the name of uh, austerity, in, in the name of uh, blaming social, blaming social spending for the city's problems. That's what we would like to avoid now. If we uh, go forward here from this point, if we can if we can avoid that. That that'd be uh, that's the first step. Just to let's not have a repeat of the social programs being cut. And if you look again, if you look back again from the seventies, just to get back into that period, that's really a defining period for the city. Uh, the consequences from that, as I said, uh, tuition was charged at city college for the first time, but it was always free. Zoos became expensive to go to. The city's parks were left for dead. 
if you remember, I don't know if you lived in the city back in the 80s. And there was yeah, that, yeah. Parks were really uh, bad. Because the budget was all cut from the 70s. That, that was a product of what I'm, I'm saying. So we want to avoid a repeat of that, first and foremost. And I think it's... Uh, the city is... Uh, the city's politics has gotten... At least on the surface, more progressive. Uh, like the, the the coalition that elected Ed Koch and Giuliani, it doesn't seem to exist now. I mean, they're very conservative, kind of law and order coalition. It doesn't seem to exist in the city now. It seems like the, uh, the city's politics have has gotten a little more progressive when it comes to like policing and uh, and maybe and also hopefully maybe uh, spending. So hopefully we could avoid. Uh, the worst of the seven, but that, that, the first step would be let's avoid that going forward. That, that would be the first step, I think. Yeah, yeah, and also there was an interesting passage in the book about nine eleven and the misperception about how uh, about tax on capitalism. If you expand yes. a little bit about that, yeah. Well, the funny, uh, the uh, the terrorists that attacked uh, New York City, the Islamic terrorists, both in both in uh, both times they, they attacked the city. They attacked. The World Trade Center, and uh, the World Trade Center was never really, uh, you know, it became more 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 famous after it was uh, unfortunately destroyed in the 9/11 attacks. It really was never the city's favorite building. You know, the Empire State Building probably would get that would get that title. But the the uh, World Trade Center was a project of the uh, Rockefellers, and when it was built, it was a uh, Part of uh, one consequence of it being built is that New York's port, the port of New York, was moved to Jersey, and it was New York's port that always made it. It was the port that made the city what it was. The reason why New York is the big, biggest city in the country, it goes back to having the best port on the East Coast, back all the way back, way back when, in the 19th century, and we lost that finally to uh, the World Trade Center. That was part of the deal to build the World Trade Center. And the World Trade Center was was owned by the Port Authority. It was never really uh, a prosperous building. It was always, it was mostly filled with like state state run business, uh, you know, state agencies. It was never really uh, it was a waste. Of, it was a white hole. It was a kind of a boondoggle from the beginning. It cost the city tons of you know hundreds of millions of dollars of tax money. Again, this, that could have you know helped uh, during, during the uh, crisis of the seventies. This, this, that was part of the whole process of of, uh, of what happened in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. People don't really I, realize that. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It's very interesting. It's interesting because like there's such a misconception about it being like a symbol of capitalism. Yeah, it wasn't. It, it, it really, wasn't, it really wasn't, most of history, yeah. it wasn't at all. I mean, yeah, terrorists had that wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. I don't know. Sometimes I think that people just get fixated on this kind it's of the thing. Buildings, yeah, yeah they're, 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 they were the tallest building. Tallest but, building. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it really was that important. Also, I just want to announce to listeners ready for Brooklyn Truth to Power show. Um, if you're uh, interested, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to communities and uh, help uh, learn about um, media literacy, all this kind of thing. So if you'd like to donate, please go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, also, we have uh, City Running Tours is a sponsor. And uh, if you live in New York City and run for the funner exercise, uh, there's a way to learn something about the city you're running in, getting your workout. 
City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods. These unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of the neighborhood uh, and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from a tour of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about City Running Tours, a list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. And check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Instagram, instagram.com slash cityrunningtours. Okay. Um, also, if you're listening to this uh, program over the computer, you can free yourself up by listening over your iPhone or Android by going to their respective Play Stores and downloading the app. Uh, also, you can find out about upcoming events at rfb.radiofreebrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Sign up for our newsletter, get some more email, although it's not uh, it's not that frequent, but it's just a question of getting updated. So thank you. We're here with Joseph Grasso. We're finishing up the interview. Um, like a couple of final fun questions about pop culture and New York City. Uh, but I just remind listeners, he wrote the book Emerald City, How Capital Transformed New York. So you can find that in the New York Public Library System or in the Amazon and various places you can buy yeah. books. It's published by Zero Books, I believe, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And actually, it's actually a great publisher, so they have a lot of interesting books. If anyone likes my book, most of the publishing, most of the books that Zero publishes are just as good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, good. Very good. And uh, so uh, in regards to my final question uh, about pop culture and, uh, and New York, uh, what are some of your favorite uh, songs about New York or movies about New York or ways in which New York is depicted in the arts? Oh, great. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> the golden age of New York film, again, it was in the 70s, as uh, I mentioned before. And again, most of those movies, were, they were great movies, but they were kind of, they made the, they made the city look bad, you know. But uh, yeah, I have to go back to that era. I'd say my favorite movie on New York would be uh, probably, uh, wow, maybe Mean Streets. <laughs> yeah, Mean Streets good. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Scorsese. Yeah, New York uh, Scorsese. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, yeah I liked the, uh, uh, Dog Day Afternoon a lot. I think that's that's another great one. That's yes. another great one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a really, that was a true story. Too. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I would say Taxi Driver was great. Uh, yeah. As far as maybe maybe maybe, a, maybe like a comedy, uh, maybe like a less bleak one. Uh, hmm. Been so many. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't really think of one that wasn't bleak. <laughs> uh, yeah, because we. Uh, yeah, but also as far as music goes, we're going to be ending with the final song. So if you have any music that you want to shout out for, uh, like, uh, I mean, the obvious one, is, of course, is the Frank Sinatra or the Billy Joel's of the world. But if there's anything else, any other songs that you have that have deal with New York, you remember that, that you might like oh, to? Oh, uh, well, you know, I, I like the, the Ramones. Rockaway Beach is a great one. Rockaway Beach, yeah. yeah. Let me look that up. Let me see more. Okay, cool. Six All right, so I'll end with the Rockaway Beach. Uh, okay. Thanks so much for being here. Why don't you tell listeners oh. where they can follow you, where they can find you? Well, if you kind of Google, uh, Google my name, maybe I can go yeah. and do something with that. And then uh, I write for Counterpunch, and I write for uh, Dissident Boys sometimes. But if you Google my name, Joseph Grasso, writer. Yeah. All right, cool, cool. Thanks so much for being here. We'll Thank end you. with Ramones, uh, and we'll see uh, Rockaway Beach. Okay.
Thank you. Thanks so much. All right, take care. Bye-bye. One, two, three, four. Thank you. That went pretty well, I thought. Yeah, yeah, it was on there, but you can, oh. you can, you can, I'll hang out. But I'll be hood forever, I'm the new Sinatra And since I made it here, I can make it anywhere Yeah, they love me everywhere, I used to cop in Harlem All of my Dominicanos right there up on Broadway Pull me back to that McDonald's, took it to my stash spot 560 State Street, catch me in the kitchen like a Simmons whipping pastry Cruising down A Street, off-white Lexus Driving so slow, but BK is from Texas Me, I'm out that bed stop, home of that boy Biggie Now I live on Billboard, and I brought my boys with me Say what up to Tata, still sipping my tie, sitting courtside, Nicks and Nets give me high five. Nigga, I be spiked out, I could trip a referee. Tell by my attitude that I most definitely leave from. Yeah.